Welcome to Open Deeply Season 3, as we burn down shame and reclaim our power. The truths society pushes into the shadows are the very things that connect us. Truths around sexual authenticity, the wisdom of plant medicine, the pursuit of equity, and beyond. To open deeply, as Jack Cornfield says, takes tremendous courage, a warrior spirit. This unconventional path takes just that. So join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Kate Laurie, and my co-host is sex educator, Sunny Megatron. Today's guest is an incredibly gifted author and a key thought leader on non-monogamy and non-traditional relationships, the smart and savvy Dedeker Winston. Dedeker Winston is an educator, relationship coach, and co-host of the Multi-Amory podcast, a research-backed relationship advice show that centers non-traditional relationships. She is the author of The Smart Girl's Guide to Multi-Amory, which I personally love, and the newly published Multi-Amory, Essential Tools for Modern Relationships. But before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is made for your entertainment and informational desires only. The podcast, any opinions we share, any resources, including social media and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice and do not create a patient-client relationship. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without clearance from your health care provider and receiving professional legal counsel. All opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own. If you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to your nearest emergency center. We hope you enjoy the show. Dedeker, I am so excited to talk to you. And I know I'm speaking on behalf of Kate. Kate is too. Indeed. Hello. Good to see you. Good to see your faces. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, yes, yes. I know this is going to be an amazing conversation. So I'm just going to like dive right in. So recently you finished your second book, which I am going to get to. However, first, uh, I want to talk about the first book, which is Smart Girl's Guide to Polyamory. So Janet Hardy of The Ethical Slut fame and many other fames said of this book, smart is definitely the right word for this thoughtful, well-researched and practical guide to the female side of polyamory. And I want to focus specifically on one quote from that book where you talked about how our sex and body shaming culture shapes those who identify as or socialize as girls and women. So that quote is, these old opinions have infiltrated our movies, TV shows, books, and magazines. Girls are learning these traditional ideas about love and sex from the same places that teach them what kind of exercises to do to get a 24-inch waist and which lip shade to buy that will inspire him to ask them to the prom. The disempowering pop culture of womanhood dictates not only how our bodies should look, but how our hearts should feel. So 
you being a non-monogamy thought leader who was also raised Catholic, so I suspect that you've had to break through lots of cognitive conditioning. A little bit. Just, just a little tiny bit, you know, just for fun. I would love if you could tell us how that aspect of our culture that you wrote about applies to your own backstory. Yeah, my goodness, where to begin? Well, so I think the best entry point is I was raised with American Girl magazine. I never got to have an American Girl doll. We were too poor for that, but I got the magazine. And American Girl magazine, I I still to this day think it was just fantastic, a fantastic resource. It was so, it was very pro-feminist, but in a very age appropriate way, right? Because I was reading this at like seven, eight, nine, ten, or something like that. And, you know, take all kinds of questions from readers like, I was at the fair and this guy said that I couldn't do this game because I was a girl. Why would he say that? You know, I'm having this issue with my friend. And it was so positive and empowering and uplifting. And then when I hit puberty, my parents suddenly switched me to not only did they switch me to like a Christian girls, teen girls magazine, which was garbage, but also like then I start flipping through you know, Cosmo magazine at my friend's house or Glamour magazine at my friend's house and things like that. And the sudden switch from being so empowering and uplifting and you're great the way you are. I specifically had a book that was even produced by American Girl called like the Smart Girl's Guide to the Care and Keeping of You that was about like puberty and things like that. And it was so like your body is great and it's amazing and this is totally normal what it's going through. And like sometimes people may try to try to shame you for this or that, but it's okay. And then this smash cut to all of the media giving the opposite message, right? where all the marketing being like, no, your period is disgusting. No, your body isn't quite right. Like, no, this is the way you need to be in relationships. No, this is like, you need to be really passive in relationships. And now I'm really happy to say that uh, Cosmo in particular has gotten way better now. Like, I think a lot of this media has changed really drastically, but that was sort of my inspiration when it came to titling the book because it's so funny because I have always my entire life taken such umbrage with like calling women girls, right? And like infantilizing women. And yet thinking of like the smart girl's guide to the care and keeping of you, thinking of that same sort of more inspiring message that was for some reason more acceptable to give to myself as a younger woman was what inspired me in the titling there. And so so that's sort of, I guess, maybe the more broad mainstream approach. You know, I was raised, I actually wasn't raised Catholic. I was raised very evangelical Christian, which has its own baggage and guilt and things like that, right? You know, so for me, that's instantly a lot of sex negativity, a lot of sexual shame, a lot of shame around your body, a lot of very particular expectations of how you're going to act as a girl or as a young woman, very particular expectations around relationships that, you know, the weird irony being that maybe if it wasn't so oppressive, I wouldn't be who I am today, you know, which is like the polar opposite of so many of those things. So, I, I mean, that's just kind of scratching the surface, right, of where I came from and how much work had to go into like stripping away so much of that in order to be a more whole human being able to walk relatively freely in the world today. Yeah. I would like to hear a little bit more about how you strip those things away and maybe it'll dovetail with this question. I know from listening to you on another podcast that at least in the past, maybe still, I don't know, um, that you've done some nude modeling. 
And in that particular podcast, you were saying how actually being an author and writing your first book and the content of it was way more vulnerable than nude modeling. And I was just wondering if you could speak on that, like what in particular felt vulnerable to you? Yeah. So, so funny story with the nude modeling that all started back when I was in college. And so I was probably relatively newly deconverted, I want to say, you know, because basically as soon as I moved out of the house and no one's forcing me to go to church, don't go to church. Right. And started art modeling specifically for like art classes, like live drawing classes on my college campus. And it's so funny because when I look back at it, I'm like, why did I do that? Why was I drawn to that after coming out of this background in this particular household that I grew up in. And I do think it was sort of like really wanting to push the pendulum swing the opposite way, Um, like really trying to push against that. And for myself, I found that, you know, being nude, especially specifically in the context of being in a live drawing class where it's like, okay, there you go. You take the robe off. You're going to be in this pose for probably at least 20 minutes, maybe up to an hour. And then any hangups you have around your body, there's literally nothing you can do about it. Like if I'm feeling pudgy, I can't be like, oh God, I'm going to panic, do some crunches, right? Or, oh God, I got to really suck it in because like you can't suck it in for like an hour straight in front of a bunch of people. And so for me, it was sort of like the best exposure therapy for like, okay, it's all out there. My body just is the way that it is. And and I just have to find ways to be okay with that. And now I can't claim that that's solved any body issues ever since then. They (laughs) certainly seem to rear their ugly heads time and time again, but that was definitely the start of that. But then to tie it into the experience of writing with the book, I do think that, you know, modeling and nude modeling, because then I went on to do more like sculptural, artistic, like nude photography and things like that, really enjoyed that for many years. And I do think that almost became a little bit of a red herring, honestly, of like, oh, look how vulnerable and exposed I am over here. Look at that right? Like, so you don't have to inquire too deeply about what's actually going on inside me, you know, about my sexuality, about my relationships, about the way that I live. Because I, you know, I think at the height of when I was doing the most modeling, I was probably the most closeted about being pansexual, non-monogamous as well. So I think that's kind of an interesting counterbalance. And then with the book, I, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with that. Like when you sit down to write about something, to write about difficult relationship situations, you know, writing about the mistakes that I made, writing about the experiences that I went through, not just the negative ones, but also the positive ones, also the super sexy ones. And like always having to know in the back of my brain, like my mom's probably going to read this. My mom's probably going to read about this like hot to six summer night that I had or, or whatever. And I And I may be similar to the nude modeling thing of like, there's literally nothing I can do about that. I can't sit here and like write a book thinking about the 10 people that I don't want to piss off or make uncomfortable. Like I just have to write what is true to me and then just kind of, I don't know, just like plug my nose and dive in and then deal with the consequences afterwards. And I'm happy to say there haven't been any like super intensive consequences um, other than maybe the, the things that my mom and I talk around these days. But But yeah, I mean, Kate, you wrote a book as well. Mm -hmm. And it's like, even if your book is not like your autobiography or like your life story, there's still you in it. And Mm -hmm. it's a better book the more of yourself you put into it. And also knowing 
this is now out there and like, I can't go back and change it. I can't go back and censor it. I can't go back and add addendums or caveats unless I'm going to put out a new edition every six months or, or things like that. The, there's like a special type of vulnerability to that. I mean, was that your experience also with, with the book? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was one of those things where for me, I also was thinking about my mother <laughs> and her reading mm-hmm. it. Because mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of people that, you know, in LA that are used to who I am and I'm out and all that. But um, my mother, I hadn't told my mother until the middle of writing it. Not be, how should I say, out of trying to be kind to her because I knew that it might be hard for her and she's 83 and, and all of that. And there's a funny story how she ended up finding out, but I'm going to skip that part. But anyway, last night or like recently, I've been listening to master classes on different writers like Neil Gaiman. And right now I'm listening to David Sedaris and David Sedaris was saying, and I'm not going to quote, I'm not going to quote him perfectly, but he was just saying, when you're a good writer, you're literally kind of like stripping away your skin. Like you're, you know, you're like raw in that way. And that's what good writing is, is being willing to be that raw, that vulnerable and he's very adamant about that almost mm. it's suggesting you shouldn't you shouldn't sign up for the gig if you're not willing to do that kind of thing yeah i feel like a lot of my life like with the writing or with the podcast or or just being out at all about any number of things you know sometimes it feels like okay i'm going to walk around like with my pants down and like that's awkward and uncomfortable but wait i think that having a butt is fine on a human body. Like, I think it's okay to have a human body. Like, I don't agree with our received cultural shame around having bodies and nudity. And so it's like, yeah, this is both at the same time kind of embarrassing and exposing and vulnerable. And also it aligns with my values of the kind of world that I want to have. And so, I mean, I think that's something that probably Kate and Sunny, you two also have in common, right? Of like, we've decided we're going to be the ones to talk about the awkward stuff and share the awkward stories, not because you have no sense of feeling shame or embarrassment or awkwardness, but it's kind of like, this is the sort of world that you want to see is like more people able to talk about these things. Yeah. Feel the fear and do it anyway and be a role model for a shame-free world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I know. I I oftentimes talk to old me that wish I would have heard somebody else talking about this stuff and thinking about how I would have benefited from it so much earlier in my life. So like, for me, that's, I'm like talking to 20 year old me or 16 year old me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's so funny how so much of shame is, is just like received from other people, Mm -hmm. you -hmm. know, that we kind of receive and then swallow and then catalyze and alchemize into our own fabric. And then that makes it tricky to, to get it off. Yeah. 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 So let's, let's talk about your second book. So it's uh, multi-amory essential tools for modern relationships, and it has great tips and tricks and info. And one of those things in it is radar check-ins. Now, this is something that you start talking about on your podcast, multi-amory as well, like long before. And I would love for you to tell us, you know, what is radar check-ins and also how your followers have responded to that concept. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I'm so excited to talk about that. So I mean, to lay some groundwork, this all started back in I want to say 2015, 2016, actually, when I was still in the process of writing the first book that we came across a blog post written by a woman and her partner, and they were both software developers. And 
in the software development world, there is this process called Agile Scrum. And anyone who's listening who works in software is hearing this and going, oh God, Agile Scrum. And I promise it's sexier than it sounds. But basically it's, you know, it's kind of a process for working on a ongoing project where instead of it being like, okay, we're going to make a to-do list of all the things that we need to do and then we're going to do them, realizing that especially with something like software that's getting changed and updated and the needs of it are are getting analyzed and changed over time. Like we need more of an iterative process for being able to give feedback and change our goals as the process goes along, which is not dissimilar from a long-term relationship where it's not just like, okay, here's all the things we need to do, move in, get the house, have the baby, you know, get married, all those things, and then it's done, right? It's this living iterative process in and of itself. So they talked about applying the Agile Scrum framework to their own relationship. And we read that and we were like, this is interesting. Um, It's a little hard for someone who's maybe not from that world to incorporate. And also like they're coming from a very heterosexual monogamous standpoint. And so we were wondering, is there a way to make this more accessible? Is there like, is this something that would also work for people who are in multiple partnerships at once? Right. So we took an entire year, the three of us on the show to be like, let's just try this out in our own relationships before we start talking about it. And so we literally put it to the test in kind of all of our own like multiple relationships and started talking about our experience of it on the show. And then eventually we kind of created a framework. We turned it into Radar, like kind of cut out some of the steps and added some certain steps in. And so Radar stands for review, agree the agenda, discuss action points, and then reconnect. And so this is a formula for having a regular check-in about your relationship. We usually recommend people do it on a monthly basis, but of course that's all flexible depending on the needs of the relationship. And so I have now been doing radars basically since 2016, and I can't imagine a life without some form of check-in process in my relationship. I could talk about this literally for hours. We were almost going to write the book just about radar. Um, Honestly, that's not the version of the book that ended up being, but there's just something about having a set aside time and space to be able to talk about not just the things we want to resolve in the relationship, not just the goals that we want to achieve, but also for being able to have that feedback loop of talking about what's going well. You know, so part of the framework is we we do give a list of some agenda topics that we recommend people touch on every time, even if things are going well. You know, so for instance, a topic like sex, right? That if you feel like you have a good sexual connection with your partner, it can be really easy to actually not talk about it. Just be like, well, our sex is good, right? Like there's no problems, like this is fine. And you can rob yourself of the opportunity to be like, well, actually, I've been having this fantasy recently, or actually, I've been wanting to try this thing, or what if we shopped for this particular sex toy together? You know, an opportunity to talk about those things outside of just the heat of the moment, which can sometimes be a little messy or people can feel a little pressured, you know, if you bring that up in the heat of the moment. But also, you know, it's good to take the opportunity to give feedback about this is what I loved about the last time we had sex. I like really want more of this or I want to try this or things like that. So that's just one example. Now, what's been really interesting is in the lead up to writing the book, we were basically able to sit down with some listeners and almost do like these informal focus groups on a number of different tools. So we did this with Radar. We did this with another tool in the book, the Triforce of Communication. I think there was a third tool we did this with as well. 
because these are tools that we saw our community picking up and and just running with it and creating their own versions of it, creating their own infographics, creating little fridge magnets that help them remember the steps. Like it was really beautiful and wonderful to see. And so we got to sit down with people and literally ask them, okay, like how well does this tool work for you? What are the obstacles that you run into in using this tool? Are there ways that it's inherently designed that you don't like? Have you made any kind of changes to the way that you do it in your relationship? Have you added any particularly special agenda items? And just being able to see the way that the community has changed, adjusted, played with, turned it on its head, gave us such really valuable information so that when we write about it in the book, you know, it's not just, oh, we read this blog post and so you should try it too. It's not just, oh, we tried it and it seemed to work, so you should try it too. It is like, no, a lot of people have tried it and have given a lot of feedback. And here's all the really interesting and weird and playful ways that they've adjusted it. And so, yeah, I mean, I will say that that's probably maybe one of the biggest differences between my process writing the first book and then co-authoring on the second book was being able to have access to this audience. You know, it wasn't just like writing in a vacuum. It really was like writing with a community, which was a very different experience for me. I will say like the co-authoring experience was a challenge for me because I'm like, I'm a control freak when it comes to my writing and also every other aspect of my life. And so having to share that with two other people at first was a challenge. But then over time, you know, we've been producing the podcast together for like nine years now. And so we have built up a lot of trust and a lot of you know, a lot of goodwill, I will say, between the three of us to be able to tackle a project like this together as well. And then ultimately, it was also like co-authoring with a few thousand other people at the same time. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, and it's interesting in my private practice, the the folks that have picked up Radar and are just grooving with it, and then the people that are resistant to it, the ones that are resistant to that sort of thing are the same folks that are resistant to meeting their metamors and all these other things. And then down the road, <laughs> they eventually find out why they need to be doing these things, you know, right? So along those lines, there's many tools in the in the book. Um, a few of them are, I think you just mentioned, the Triforce of Communication, creating microscripts, and processing and reconnecting after an argument with a repair shop, and so many other things. And I was just wondering if you could just pick whatever you want or share whatever you want within the book, some of your favorite things, whatever you would like to share. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which one to go for? It's so hard to pick a favorite one. Probably the one that I, quite honestly, second to Radar that I use the most is the Triforce of Communication. Again, like super simple tool, like none of this is rocket science necessarily, but the Triforce of Communication is this whole idea of like meta communicating, right? So communicating about your communicating, being able to meta communicate to someone what you actually need and want from them in a conversation when you're coming to them, right? So we can use the classic example, the classic tired out, often very gendered example of, you know, the woman comes home from work. She wants to talk about the stress she's having at work to her male partner. The male partner just wants to tell her how she should fix it. She just wants him to listen. And then things fall apart from there. Right. And I mean, we've seen this play out in many, many different relationships, many different circumstances. It's not always tied to gender necessarily. And so basically this was inspired by some of the work that Kathy Labriola has done it's just condensing down into this shorthand that you can use to communicate to someone what it is that you're going for. You know, so Triforce number one really is just, I want to be heard. 
you know, I don't necessarily need anything from you. I don't need your problem solving. Like, I don't necessarily need your sympathy. Like, I really just want to be heard. Triforce number two is I want the poor baby. I want the comfort. I want the cuddles. I want you to tell me it's going to be okay. I want you to say, oh my God, that sounds so difficult. Um, you know, I want you to ask me questions about it. And then Triforce number three is like, no, I need your problem solving. I need your advice giving. I need your brainstorming. I need you to help me work through this together. So, so simple. And what I love about it is that this is one of the tools that can be can be one-sided in the sense that like you don't necessarily have to get your partner on board with like you got to use this weird nerdy terminology of the triforce like you yourself can just be aware okay when i'm coming to my partner i'm going to just going to be really clear can you help me brainstorm some possible solutions to this like this is why i'm coming to you right or you know what i i, I don't really want to think about solutions right now like can you just cuddle me and tell me that it's going to be okay and the other person doesn't necessarily have to be bought in to the shorthand you know, hopefully they're they're able to at least pick up on that cue and that request, right? But what's been really cool, again, to bring it back to our audience is that this is a tool that, again, we saw our audience pick up and use in their own relationships, but also they're using it in our online communities. So we have these private Patreon communities, we have a private Facebook group and a private Discord server, and people started using it you know, when they're posting about their lives, right? When they're talking about, this is a situation I'm running into with my metamore, but I just want T2. I just want sympathy. I just want empathy. I just want other people to share that like, they know how hard this is and they totally get it, right? And I'm pretty convinced that just having that meta communication tool for our community probably eliminates 99% of the drama that we see happen in many other online spaces. Because there's times when, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I, I like slid into uh, the Japanese language subreddit for, for learning Japanese because I, I, I speak the language that I've been studying for many years. And I was looking for like a particular resource or like some suggestions from people. You know, I was like, I'm trying to learn this thing. Like, what are your suggestions? What do you think would be would be good? And then like 10 people slide in with like, well, you probably shouldn't be doing this anyway. Well, if I were you, I don't know. Or like, I'm just going to say something totally irrelevant, right? And I'm just like, oh, this is why people get so frustrated online. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people get frustrated online. But I'm like, when you're really trying to turn to some community for help and everyone swoops in with what they think you're wanting, or sometimes they don't even care what it is that you're wanting. They just kind of swoop in with whatever. And so it's been a really wonderful tool for our community, for people being able to actually get the thing that they're wanting from the community. And then they also picked it up and turned it, you know, they they invented T4, which is like, send me memes and like cute dog pictures and stuff like that. Like, so that's also been a really wonderful, magical thing to see. Oh, that is amazing. And yeah, I encourage anybody listening along. I'm like, I'm going to give you all of the endorsements. Like, in my life, that it, whether it's a personal relationship, whether it's online, it's like, not much enrages me, but unsolicited advice does. I will like, you know, and just the, hey, I'm, I'm at home, maybe I'm venting and that stop and like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Are you just venting? Or like, do you need me to do? It's like, oh, and, okay, cool. And then it's like, boom. Before that entered my life, it was a little chaotic. So everyone, please, please look into the Triforce of Communication. Please, please, please. I think also something that, that really upgrades this is, first of all, having the permission to not know right away, because that's something people run into, right? It's like, well, I, I'm not sure. I'm, not, I'm too upset. I, my, my brain is too full. Like, I, I'm not sure what it is. So the permission to not know right away. 
And then the permission to change your mind halfway through. Because heaven knows so many times I've gone to someone and been like, okay, yes, I want your T3. I want the advice. I want the problem solving. Great. We get into it. We get into it. And then I'm like, why am I pissed off right now? And I have to realize it's because I thought I wanted advice and actually I didn't. I just wanted to be heard. And so I can be like, let's pause. Actually, you know what? I think I'm good on the advice front. Can can I just do a T1? Can you just hear me? Right. And then I can have a partner who's like, totally, you got it. And I think that really again, like really upgrades the use of that meta communication is that it, you don't have to be stuck. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have it as a three course meal. Exactly. A little T1, a little T2, some, some T3 for dessert. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been non-monogamous for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I would love to know what is the hardest thing about being non-monogamous when you are Dedeker Winston at this point in your life? Ooh. The overwhelming power of you should know better. I talk about that a lot. I think about that a lot. And and I think that's not just coming from many years of non-monogamy experience. It's not just coming from many years of talking about non-monogamy in a very public forum. But, and I mean, the two of you can probably relate to this. It's also coming from, you know, doing therapy training, working with clients, you know, actually giving people advice when they want your advice. And that's really helpful because I feel like I have a lot of tools under my belt. Like having a lot of experience under my belt is great. And also it does mean like when I fuck up, like we all do, or when emotions get out of hand, it's, it's this double-edged sword, right? Of like, there's always going to be the voice in the back of your brain. That's like, you should know better. You have the tools for this. You know, this is not a good way to communicate. You know, this is not a good way to relate to this person or whatever. And on the one hand that can really keep you on the straight and narrow. And on the other hand, it can also introduce a whole extra level of guilt and shame, right? You know, I do think that non-monogamous folk and polyamorous folk already can suffer from that pressure to look and appear perfect all the time because we're so used to fielding endless criticism from all sides. And so it's like, you have to be the model citizen at all times. And then when you're also practicing non-monogamy in a much more public way, that just adds on to that, right? You know, so for me, it's it's been really helpful over the years to make sure I have my own support network that is outside of my community, my own support network that is not connected to any of this necessarily, like my own therapeutic support to be able to have someone where I can, you know, I can be a total mess with. I can be like, I don't know what tool to use, or like, I know what tool to use, and I really don't fucking feel like it right now, you know? Somebody that, that lets stuff. you be a human being that, yes. you know, is sometimes yeah. strong and sometimes vulnerable and all the things. Yes. Uh, right? I, I'm wondering, Sunny, how would you answer that same question? You know, like, what's the hardest thing about kink being either kinky or non monogamous when you are Sunny Megatron at this juncture in time? God. Yeah. I mean, There's a lot that's easy and there's a lot that's hard. I think sometimes, you know, because I am one of those like analytical, think about every angle sort of person, that sometimes it's not just like I'm enjoying myself, I'm going or I'm making my own mistakes or I'm doing whatever. It's like, well, there's this framework. Mm Ah, I just Mm want to be like everybody else. That yes. yeah yeah yes. yeah it's, I can't it's hard to like take that hat off sometimes and just be just mm-hmm. live yeah mm-hmm. yeah I think the hardest for me it has to do with dating like I'm I'm dating right now and uh, how's so many, that 
well, you know, like I tend to stay on field, you know, but it's hard. It seems like so many people on there say that they're new and I'd rather have somebody that has been doing it for a while. And then a lot of people that start talking to me, they want me to kind of be their Julie Cruz director of non-monogamy. They're, they're like, oh, I can't wait for you to teach me things. And I'm like, I'm off the clock, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that's a little bit frustrating. But, I do have to uh, share a funny story related to that, though. So this was this was pre-pandemic. So a few years back, I was dating this guy and we had been together maybe a year or so and we ran into this situation where he he wanted to get back together with his ex his ex was always kind of floating in the picture and he was interested in being back in relationship with her uh, but she was very monogamous right like not down with the non-monogamy definitely not down with me right and so he's in a little bit of a pickle right and he decided like his best version of compromise was he came to me and he was like, okay, I think I figured it out. Like we'll still be together, but we just won't have sex. And then my ex will be okay with it and everyone's happy. Right. And I was like, no, 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 no one's going to be happy. Trust me. No one's going to be happy in this situation. I appreciate you're thinking this through and trying to come up with creative solutions. And he was a little surprised by that, but then I was like, you know what, let's take a little space. Like, I, I think you need to go and kind of seek out some other resources, right? Like I can't, I have my opinions about whether or not this is going to work out. Right. And I have my personal opinion and my professional opinion, but like, you need to go do some of your own research. Right. And so he did. And he came back to me and he said that in a Facebook group, he kind of posted about it. And that one of the responses, someone was like, you should really read the smart girl's guide to polyamory. I think that's a good. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. And it was a weird mix. Oh it was God. a weird mix of like, there was a part of me cringing where I was like, no, 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 no. Like you need to know someone else other than me. Like you need to find other resources, not just me. And then also being like, well, of course, because I'm right. Like, of course I'm right about this situation. <laughs> oh my gosh. The universe just kind of circled back around. Yes. It? Have y'all. Uh, ever run into situations like that like where people are kind of interfacing with the work that you've made yeah yeah but that, that's a whole that's a whole thing uh, yeah do you have a a nutshell sunny i don't have any i don't nutshell. have like a, a good like particular story like you do but yeah it's it's happened here and there and it's just weird yeah <laughs> It's weird. It's weird. I just want to be a person. Like. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right. So, you know, I know that at least in the past, I don't know about right now, you've been a digital nomad and non-monogamous concurrently. And so many people are becoming digital nomads after the pandemic. And I was just wondering how you feel about that combo of being a digital nomad and non-monogamous. And what would you say to someone who's curious about pursuing that combination? Yeah, it's so funny. A few years ago, I actually had this idea of like, ooh, I, I should write more about this combination, right? This like digital nomad and non-monogamy combination. And like, I tried to pitch that to my literary agent. And I think my agent, of course, was like, wait, what? Digital nomads are already weirdos and then non-monogamy weirdos? Like, no, there's no way. There's no way that's going to sell, right? But maybe we'll see, especially like you were pointing out, Kate, like since post-pandemic, more people are coming to non-monogamy and more people are coming to digital nomadery. So we'll see how that all comes out in the wash. But yeah, so back in 2015, I went through like this really, really big breakup and decided, fuck it. I got rid of my apartment. I got rid of all my stuff and basically, you know, condensed down to a backpack, bought a one-way ticket to Bulgaria 
and then uh, did that for five years. I, I, you know, spent five years without a, an apartment, without a home base, and just kind of traveling around. You know, that was when I was first starting to work on writing the book. So I was focusing on writing the book, just starting to work with clients around that time. I was spending, you know, months at a time in different countries, and then eventually, you know, got into this pattern where for many, many years. I was doing sort of like an international joint custody between my two partners in that I would spend several months out of the year living with my partner, Jace. And then I would spend several months out of the year living with my other partner who lived in Singapore for several years. And then he also ended up moving and getting a job in Australia. So I'd stay with him in Australia for several years. And it was a weird combination of on the one hand exhausting, right? Because it's a little bit different when your partner lives across town versus they're literally on the other side of the ocean. They're literally as far away on the planet as they possibly can be. So like definitely exhausting. I mean, for myself, I was already moving around so much and used to traveling so much anyway. And and I certainly had a, a particular amount of lightness of being when you only have a suitcase that makes it a little bit easier to be cohabiting with two different partners throughout the year. But then I also really loved it to a certain extent. Like, honestly, so so my partner who lives in Singapore, we're not together anymore. We broke up at the beginning of 2022. But, you know, I don't miss the international part of it. But the experience of being able to cohabit with two different people sort of on this part-time basis, I really, really enjoyed quite a lot. You know, I felt like it really enhanced some of the wonderful parts about non-monogamy, about how when you're with different people, it brings out different sides of you. And like each relationship is kind of unique and special in its strengths and weaknesses and and what it brings out of you, both positive and negative. And I feel like it really enhanced that a lot. And it was sort of a weird thing where so Jace's other partner, he also went through a breakup pre-pandemic. And then in 2022, when I went through a breakup, there was this weird year where Jace and I, for the first time in like decades, were like de facto monogamous and like we didn't have any other partners. We'd never been in that situation before. Like we'd always, always, always in our relationship had been dating other people. And it was this year, it was actually really wonderful. Like it was like such a, it was like this weird, it was like we're experimenting with monogamy <laughs> um, kind of year for us. And then I recently started dating someone at the end of last year. And I do think some of that has has been really nice in the sense that Jason and I had gotten used to like spending months apart, you know, like getting to be like, great, I have this couple months where I'm not around you and and like I have my alone time and space and I'm dating other people and like having a great time. And then we get to have this great reunion. And then now we're kind of getting to have a little bit of that again in a much more sustainable way. And that like, you know, my other partner now lives in Portland, which is only like a three hour drive away instead of like a 20 hour plane flight. But yeah, no, I I still like really really treasure that experience. Like it's still really special to me. I don't know if I would repeat it because, you know, I I think in the last couple of years I've started fantasizing about like what is it like when your partner lives in the same town as you? That sounds really nice. <laughs> I don't remember those days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, you know, when I hear about that, I just I'm so curious and eager because I'm I'm getting ready for an international move and oh right right Portugal yeah for me I, this is an unexpected 
you know, mind fuck and like, whoa, um, you know, because at the, at the crux of what we do is like this self-awareness, knowing who we are and this identity. And, and now that I'm looking at everything that I have, I've got, you know, two, three dead relatives back stuff, you know, and I'm getting rid of it all. And I'm like, mm. who really am I without my possessions, without mm. like, you know, what I consider home. I've never had a, like not had a home base or who am I without the, you know, American like hustle culture version of capitalism. It's like, it is a mind fuck just thinking about it and I'm not even yes. there yet. So yes. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that Sunny, because I, I think I went through the opposite through the pandemic because of course, like my nomading had to come to a halt right through the pandemic. And then in 2022, when I went through the breakup and I'm like, oh, suddenly I don't have an excuse to be getting on a plane to go to Australia or Singapore or whatever. I sort of went through that weird opposite. And then also at the same time, Jason and I like bought our first home together. Like you know, I, for the first time I had a, an actual home base for the first time in like seven years or however long it was. All, again, that weird crisis of who am I? Who am I if I'm not jet setting? Who am I if I'm not going on all these adventures? Am I just like a boring normie who lives in the same place year round? That's so boring. How do people do this? But I, I now have come to love it. You know, now I think that I've been trying to kind of integrate the best of both worlds and that it actually has been really wonderful and really healing to have a home base, but also to be able to be like, yeah, if we, you know, I mean, last summer, it's like I spent a month in Scotland taking care of a goat farm. And I was able to do that and work at the same time. That was, oh God, it was amazing. It was amazing. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm like, yes. oh, Sunny, like, oh, <laughs> they were pygmy goats also. And three weeks before we arrived, one of the goats had surprise twin babies. And so like my days was just like getting up in the morning and like feeding the goats and like picking up both those little babies under my arms and just like taking in the Scottish countryside. And then like my work day didn't start till three o'clock. It was fantastic. But now I really enjoy being able to do that, but then come back to an actual home instead of it being always different goat farms around the world. You're like the goat grandma. They're fun for a while, then go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I've heard you say quite a bit that you love relationship anarchy. So I would love it if you could explain exactly what relationship anarchy is and why you resonate with it so much. Yeah. And, and you know, my my attitude toward it, toward it, my experience of it, my definition of it has changed quite a bit over the years. You know, so I... Oh, do I identify as a quote unquote purist? I don't know if purist is the right word, but I'm I'm definitely the kind of person where I'm like the relationship anarchy manifesto. That's what I base this all on. You know, I, I mean, we are living in the fringes of these weird little subcultures where there's so many definitions and practices and people arguing over, well, I don't think that's the right practice. I don't think that's the label that applies to this. I think it should be this other label, you know, whatever. For me, there's a lot of clarity in just being like, what does it say in the relationship anarchy manifesto. And it's short. It's like 12 paragraphs. Right? So it's definitely not a Bible or an instruction manual to live by, but at least lays out some particular values that are really helpful, you know, values around, uh, you know, seeking trust in relationships in like customizing your commitments and your agreements with people and acknowledging the fact that, you know, we live with these very strong mainstream currents that push back against us constantly. And we need to be aware of that and have energy for that and also care for ourselves. So for me, like that's really where the practice of relationship anarchy stems from. 
I am someone where I will, this is controversial, but I will make the argument that I think someone can choose a sexual and romantic monogamy and also be a relationship anarchist because I, I don't think relationship anarchy and non-monogamy and polyamory inherently have to equal the same thing all the time. Now, the unfortunate thing is the way that I've sometimes seen people interact with relationship anarchy is sometimes I've seen people practicing relationship anarchy in a way that I would actually call relationship libertarianism in the sense of, okay, like you're responsible for your shit. I'm responsible for my shit. If you're feeling any type of way, or if you're disappointed that our relationship doesn't look some type of way, that's on you. That's not on me. I have no responsibility towards you. We're all just going to be kind of like atoms bumping up against each other and then hoping that it all turns out. Okay. You know, so it's like, I have seen people kind of use the relationship anarchy label as a means of maybe protecting themselves against expectation or commitment that they're not ready to make or or taking emotional responsibility you know so so that's something that i like i'm not a huge fan of so that's why sometimes i don't necessarily even use the relationship anarchist label sometimes i will just say like i like to live by some relationship anarchist principles you know, that, that's all kind of in flow for me right now. But I hope that answers your question. Yeah. And I feel that. I absolutely feel that. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, one thing that you said, I would love for you to just like briefly explain, because I got it, but I'm like, I almost didn't. And I was like, oh, yes. How you said you can be a relationship anarchist and be monogamous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure some people are like, wait, excuse me, what? Go back. <laughs> so what does that mean? Well, so I can use an example, right? Where if one of the foundational principles is customizing your commitments, right? So that may look like, okay, I have a partner and we have decided together that we want to customize our commitment to include sexual exclusivity and maybe even romantic exclusivity. And of course, we have to be specific about what that means. You know, does it mean, okay, exclusively, I will call you my boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, whatever it is. You know, you have to define that. But maybe I want to co-parent with my best friend. And my best friend is also interested in co-parenting with me. And so we're going to negotiate that together and customize that commitment together. And then as far as cohabiting, I don't know, maybe I want to live by myself. You know, maybe I have the money and the privilege to be able to do that. So it's the kind of thing where, yes, of course, when we just say the word monogamy, we tend to make the assumption, well, of course, that includes sex, romance. Do you identify as a couple? Are you going to have children together? Are you going to cohabit together? Are you going to get married? Are you going to go to family functions together? All these things that come attached to it when that's not necessarily the case, you know, and, and those of us who've been practicing non-monogamy for a long time, again, like we get it, we get that relationships can be this buffet that we can negotiate that it doesn't have to be one size fits all. But I do think there is something really beautiful to be said where it's like, I think agreeing on some form of monogamy in itself isn't inherently toxic or bad. You know, what becomes toxic about it is when we make a lot of kind of oppressive assumptions around, well, it has to include all of these things, even if neither of us really want that together. Or if I feel like maybe you're a good partner for X, but maybe not a great partner for this other aspect of life. You know, so so I think it's that. I mean, how many people out there are practicing in that particular way? I couldn't give you statistics necessarily, but that's, I don't know, that's kind of how I wrap my brain around it. And I, and I do think there are some people in the relationship anarchy community that, you know, would push against like, oh, monogamy is like inherently controlling or it's inherently oppressive, which I don't think it necessarily is. Yeah. 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 Thank you. 
All right. So, you know, with non-monogamy, jealousy is always the biggest topic, isn't it? You stated that jealousy has been a big teacher for you. And I'm wondering if you could speak on that. You know, what have you learned personally in your life? You know, what has jealousy taught you? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, so many things, my God. I mean, it's taught me that I, I can have a really petty, bitchy, shadowy self that still lives on within me, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, haven't gotten rid of her yet. Probably will never get rid of her. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't want to give necessarily like my standard, like mainstream interview answer to it because I mean, we've all been asked 6 billion times, right? By like, oh, what about the jealousy? What about the jealousy or whatever? Um, so I'll talk about what I've been grappling with recently. You know, I realized that I'm very fortunate in that right now, my relationships feel very secure, that I think I've built relationships that are really trusting and really good communication and really supportive. And we feel, you know, we can be vulnerable with each other about our feelings and especially feelings of jealousy and things like that. And I realized, you know, when I'm faced with the prospect of a partner dating someone new or, you know, even getting on the apps or, or you know, things like that, I realized, oh, I, I don't actually feel scared of my partner doing something wrong or doing something to hurt me. I don't actually feel scared of being abandoned. I don't actually feel scared like, oh, my partner is just not going to consider me or they're going to fuck this up in some way. Because I, I, you know, I feel like there's a lot of trust and I feel like even if we run into roadblocks, we can communicate it. These days I realize I feel more scared of what bullshit my own brain is going to come up with. I feel scared of my own brain. Like I feel scared of my own stories. Like that's actually what it is. I feel scared of the story of my brain being like, well, what if they do fuck this up? Or no, but what if this means that they're no longer attracted to you? Or what if this means that that's actually the type of body they've been attracted to all along and it's not yours? Like I realized this weird distinction of, no, it, it's my own bullshit that I'm afraid of. Like it's my own bullshit. I was recently uh, introduced to this image that's used quite a bit in acceptance and commitment therapy, it's the whole um, image of being on the bus. Like you're the bus driver and in the back of the bus are all these like really loud, obnoxious, angry passengers. And your job is like, it's annoying to have to deal with the passengers, but really I just got to get this bus to where it needs to go. And I realize like, I can get the bus where it needs to go. I'm just scared of dealing with all those noisy people in the back. Well, this is all internal family systems stuff, you know, internal family systems and Richard Schwartz and, and all of that blend so well with non-monogamy. And when we realize that we have parts of ourselves that have different opinions, different agendas, and will show up differently regarding non-monogamy, then uh, I think we can have a lot more compassion for ourselves. Yeah, I'm trying, I mean, I'm trying on the compassion piece, but, but I feel very fortunate, though, because I've been in relationships in the past where it hasn't been that. It genuinely has been like there's some relationship insecurity here. And that's what the jealousy is pointing to. There really is a sense of my partner is going to abandon me or forget about me. They really are going to fuck something up. Or, like maybe there's historical evidence to suggest that. And now it's like, no, like that's all great. It's just my own shit, man. It's my own shit, man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I, I can relate. And I guess like... I guess we're going to do like the, the opposite of that because you have said at one point that you endeavor to live a fuckless life. And I'm like, yay, more, more fuckless. Uh, so 
yeah, how are you living your life right now? And how are you moving towards or incorporating that fuckless life? Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, the backstory of the fuckless life thing is that all came about because Amanda Catherine Loy has this wonderful podcast called Live Your Fuck Yes Life. But when she first invited me on for an interview, I think back in 2018, for some reason in my brain, in like the calendar invite, I kept reading it as Live Your Fuck Less Life. And then I was like, uh, I kind of like that more, I, yeah. I think, than like your fuck yes life. Yeah. So the way I'm living my fuck less life, um, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, at Multiamory, we're coming to the end of this three, four year project of writing the book together. And, you know, the three of us are perfectionists, which has been a wonderful superpower in being business partners together. And it has also just like so gotten in our way time and time again and has added like really unnecessary stress and distress to everything that we do, right? I mean, you know, the trauma of perfectionism, right? It's like nothing is ever good enough. You have never done enough. You've never done well enough. You don't belong, like all of these things, right? And so, you know, essentially my supervisor. So right now I'm I'm very, very close to completing my like somatic experiencing therapy training. And my supervisor introduced me to this phrase that they say in Brazil that essentially translates to spoon the fruit. And it, the image that he laid out for me was this idea that you're growing this tree and you've been cultivating it and caring for it in all types of weather. And it's finally produced some fruit and you've waited for the fruit to ripen and you can finally harvest the fruit. And like, now is the time you literally get to spoon the fruit instead of just like tossing the fruit in the back of the truck and then moving on to other things, which is really common for myself to do really common for the three of us to do. Again, I do think it's tied to kind of like a hyper-functioning perfectionistic sort of thing. And so in coming to the end of this book writing process, it's really trying to land in the completion of that, like actually feel into the completion of that. Just like trying to spoon that fruit and like really trying to give myself and ourselves messages of like, yes, you've done enough. Like you've done a thing. That's good. You don't need to dive right into the next project. You don't need to dive into all the ways that it's imperfect, which is really hard for me to not do. Yeah. So I, I think that's the first thing that comes to mind in the like fuck less life is like, and I guess it kind of ties back around to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, a little bit of this like, well, I've exposed myself. It's out there and there's nothing I can do. I have to be fuck less. I can't give any more fucks about it anymore. I have to just be like, yeah, there it was. You know, warts and all, good parts, bad parts, really cool parts, really embarrassing parts. Like it's just there. I kind of have to have that approach to it now. Yeah. Yeah. Live a fuckless life. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I love that we, you know, we came full circle to where we started. Mm. And I would love for you as we close up to. I don't know. You have, do you have a, a last wise words for folks listening? And then also tell us where we can find you, what you've got going on. Is there anything new and all that good stuff? Oh, last wise words. My goodness. I, I feel like we covered such good ground on this show. Um, I'm going to tie it back to shame. Again, I'm going to try to tie it back to the beginning of the episode and the beginning to like what you were sharing, Sunny, about conversations with your younger self and all the things that you wish that she knew. Because I, I think I grapple with the same things, right? Like, like how different could it have been if 
when I was reading the Smart Girl's Guide to the Care and Keeping of You, there was something about healthy relationships in there. Not even about non-monogamy, right? Like literally just about this is what abuse looks like and this is what a healthy relationship looks like, you know? So, I mean, to tie that all back, I just think I would tie it into us being able to have compassion for our younger selves, compassion for the younger selves within us that still lives in us and still reacts to our mistakes or sometimes causes our mistakes sometimes. And yeah, I think maybe just remembering that that's a dialogue, like not only do we want to be looking back at our younger selves and comforting them and trying to tell them the things we wish that they knew, but they also, they want to inform us as well. They want to remind us of things from our past. They want to remind us of, you know, maybe an innocence we once had or a beginner's mind that we once had. So, so yeah, that was maybe a big mismatch of a number of different things, but that's what's top of mind. Maybe my younger self is going spoon the fruit. Yes. Spoon Spoon that fruit. (laughs) (laughs) And where can folks find you? Yeah. So people can find me at DedekerWinston.com. They can also find me on Instagram or Twitter at DedekerWinston. And then Multiamory, you can find wherever you get your podcasts. And then you can go to Multiamory.com slash book to find where you can get our book as well. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I want to tell listeners, you know, thanks for being with us. Make sure you subscribe because we have more good, juicy, thoughtful, spoon the fruit kind of stuff for you in our future episodes. And we will see you again on our next episode where we once again dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.